and let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the gift of your word, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are sovereign over all things, that all of history marches to your tune. It's on your schedule. And you are going to finally rid the world of evil. You are going to make all things right. And here we are coming to the end of your program with man. And you are bringing judgment. You are separating the sheep from the goats. And I pray that uh, as we see this, that we would see you, that we would know you, that we would be able to worship you aright. And I pray that you would help us to see you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 17 and 18 are the judgment on Babylon the Great. And we saw in chapter 17 that that was primarily the religious aspect of Babylon the Great. And that has actually been carrying on over time, over the period of the Great of the, the Tribulation. During the first part of the Tribulation, the world basically has, is united around a single false religion. And we see at the halfway point of the Tribulation that the beast is actually the one that turns on that false religion to replace it with worship of him, of himself, and of Satan himself. And so the last half of the Great Tribulation, you, basic, you have a very clear divide. You have those who worship the devil, and you have those who worship God and his Christ. That's it. Those are the two camps. And the one that is worshiping the devil is very um, they will not tolerate those who worship God. And so those who worship God are hunted. They are persecuted and they are prosecuted. That idea of hunting them down in order to make them pay. Because again, remember, you know, Jesus said, because they've hated me, they're going to what? They're going to hate you. They can't get to Christ. And so the next best thing, you get at those who belong to Christ. And so you have this great divide. And so in chapter 17 and 18, chapter 17 is the religious aspect. Chapter 18 is the judgment on the political, economical seat of power for the beast. That is the physical city of Babylon the Great. And so we see that God brings judgment. Um, we saw at the end of chapter 16 with the seventh bowl that God remembered Babylon. He has special attention to Babylon the Great. And we saw that in chapter 18, how in a very brief period of time, all of a sudden, this city that has been, you know, the the poster child of opulence, the poster child of, of, of wealth, and all of those things that are anti-God. In, in a very brief period of time, all of that is brought to naught. And Babylon the Great becomes basically 
a, uh, a place where you see the, the, the burning of her judgment. So for instance, when we have a big fire burning up here in the hills and you see that tall smoke column coming out from that fire, that's what Babylon the Great ends up looking like. She is a column of smoke. And you know at the base of that column of smoke, what do you have? Heap big fire. And so that judgment has come. Now actually the first part of chapter 19 is the continuation of the fourth command. Remember last week we talked about there were four voices that spoke and, and, and um, you had those who were lamenting. You had judgment pronounced on Babylon. Then you had the lament of the, the leaders of the earth and you had the lament of the um, the merchants of the earth and you had the lament of those who were doing the transportation for all those goods because the judgment on Babylon was affecting them. They'd gotten rich off of Babylon. They bought into this, this idea of supporting what Babylon represented. As a result, they got rich. So when her judgment comes, all of a sudden it's hitting them too. And those who had been very close to her are all of a sudden standing at a distance because they don't want to get caught up in what she just got nailed with. And so the fourth of those voices is the command, rejoice, you who are in heaven. Rejoice, O heaven. You'll find that in chapter 18, verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Now, then you have that interlude where the strong angel comes out with a giant millstone, throws it into the ocean. This is a picture of what is happening to Babylon. The continuation in the response to this command to rejoice over, what, over the judgment that has happened relative to Babylon is carried out in the first part of chapter 19. So let's start in chapter 19, verse one. After these things, and again, when you see this after these things, what is that in this book? What's happening? It's a new scene. So we are shifting from the issue of the millstone, and now we are shifting over here to the response of those in heaven. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. So this is the voice of a large crowd. A large crowd. How many angels are there? <laughs> Dave says myriads. Okay. If again, if we go back into... The trumpets. In the trumpets, we find the sixth trumpet. This is back in chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. And we have these angels who are released. 
And we have some other representatives of Satan who are released. Are we having trouble with the sound? Okay, thanks. And we see a number, 200 million. Now, if those are in fact angels, and I think there's reason to believe those are demons, if there's 200 million demons, if that were to represent all of the demons, then how many holy angels would there be? Okay, there would be at least 400 million because remember that Satan, when he got kicked out of heaven, how many angels did he take with him? One third, which means automatically that the holy angels, are, there's twice as many of them. So if in fact all you had was the 200 million, then you would have at least 400 million holy angels. Now that's a big crowd. That is the entire population of our country. And frankly, that's not, that can't be the totality of it. There's got to be more than that. So the fact of the matter is, when you talk about this crowd of angels in heaven singing, that is some choir. So if you've got a couple hundred, you know, 400 million angels, I'll bet my wife wishes she could get them for doing the hallelujah, for, for doing the Messiah this December. The loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. And why, why am I just picking on angels here? Because the command for the redeemed, for the saints to join in, happens in verse 5. So this is probably just the angelic choir. Loud voice saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And so here you have two hallelujahs that are offered by the angelic realm. It is interesting, hallelujah is a term that you see frequently in the Old Testament. You see it frequently in the book of Psalms. I didn't realize this until preparing, until studying this chapter. Hallelujah, or the Greek version, alleluia, that term is only used four times in the New Testament. And they're all in this chapter. All of them are here. What does hallelujah mean? Praise Yahweh. Praise God. So hallel, praise. Yah, being a form of Yahweh. Those two put together, praise God. Praise the Lord. That's the meaning of the term. Why? And so here again, you see that this is praise that is being offered to God. And again, as we've looked through this book, every time that we see praise being offered to God in heaven, you never see the word I. You never see 
personal pronouns other than to say he is our God. That praise is always focused on him. It is focused on him for who he is. It is focused on him for what he has done. You never see the word, he has done this for me. It is always simply focused on him. And so here, it continues on in the same vein. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, why would that be significant coming from where? What is this praise in response to? Why are they offering this particular praise? What's, what, what is initiating this response in their hearts? God's judgment. Yeah, you have had those who have opposed him, and they have opposed him over centuries. All of these pleas, remember back in the, in the seal judgments, fifth seal judgment, you have the, the question that is asked by the souls of those who have been martyred that are under the altar, Lord, how long? That is a question that has been asked by many over the years. Many have asked that. And always it has been persevere, hold on, keep doing right, don't let your faith go sideways, keep your head on, keep under the load, keep moving. That has always been the response until now. Now. God's answering that question. How long? Now. And here's the judgment that is coming on those. And that judgment is rooted in this. <laughs> this is an incredible thing about God. His judgments are rooted in truth. He is, he is truth. And so everything that he does comes out of truth. There is no error. And in fact, he stands counter to error. His works are rooted in righteousness, in rightness. And so you have those things that are right, that are proper, that are good, as they're defined by God, and then you've got everything else. So his judgments are always appropriate. They always are on point. He never gets sidetracked. He never somehow gets tilted a little bit. All of his responses are dealing with the issue. His finger goes right to the pulse and he is able to bring judgment that is not only appropriate, but it is also proportional. We saw that with his reaction to Babylon, right? Babylon has her sins, and God knows what her sins are. And he's got them listed. And his thing, his, his judgment is, as it comes, as she has given, so bring that on her. And so it is appropriate. You're going to have people in hell who have warranted additional judgment. And they're not the people you might think. 
Who do you think is going to receive the hottest part of God's wrath? False teachers. Yes. Those type of people. Why? Because they have been deceivers. Those who have brought something represented as truth and yet it is error. It has led people astray. And many of those, it is going to be done, that leading astray was done in the name of religion. And so, God, his judgments are faithful. They are true. They are accurate. He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. So again, because she was persecuting those who were followers of the one true God, that is now being brought back on her. And a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, you will find in Christendom, you will find a doctrine taught that basically... Since God is love, it is impossible for God to actually have a place called hell that people will go to. What is that? That is a lie. All right? Pure, plain, simple. That is a very dangerous doctrine to teach because what may you be doing leading people to hell exactly again and 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 i realize all right i realize i'm preaching to the choir here okay i do but again when jesus is saying Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, and what's the terrifying word in that sentence? Many. There are many who think they are on the straight and narrow. And where in fact are they? They're on the wide and the broad way that leads to destruction. And again, who is the most difficult person to reach with the gospel? Somebody who thinks they're already saved. I'm already in. I don't need to hear this. And again, you know, if you're going to go back to Lost in Space, that is a danger Will Robinson moment there. And so again, the idea here of Deception, we've talked about this before. If somebody is being deceived, do they know they're being deceived? No. That's the whole purpose. That's the, that's the, the hard thing about deception. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. 
So if you, heard, if you have somebody, there's another doctrine that'll come out here, annihilationalism. What, what's, that, what's the idea behind that? Nothingness. Yeah, nothing. You just end up, um, you end up, you cease to exist. You're not going to find that in the Bible anywhere. And in fact, who would be probably the one with the best knowledge of heaven and hell that we find in the New Testament. Who's going to have the best knowledge in the New Testament? Jesus is. You realize that Jesus spoke of hell far more often than he ever spoke of heaven. Far more often. And do you ever get the impression from Jesus as he is teaching in the Gospels. Do you ever get the impression that at the end of the day, you just, if you're, if you're unredeemed, that somehow you just fade to black? Do you ever get that impression? How does Jesus put that? You end up in a place where the worm never dies, where the anguish you know, there's, there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know what gnashing of teeth is, right? You know, where you're grinding your teeth. Welcome to life in hell. And so again, the idea that somehow, you know, God could not possibly do that. God could not possibly not do that. He's holy. He's just. He never lies. His wrath is just as perfect as his mercy. And so please do not fall prey to any of these ideas. And when you're speaking to someone about the gospel, and when you're speaking to someone about the consequences of sin, don't soft pedal that. There is a reason to flee from the wrath that is to come. There's a wrath to flee from. And the beauty of the gospel is there's a savior to flee to. Don't soft pedal that. Is it kind if somebody is physically dying to masquerade that? Is that kind? Even unbelievers, when they come to the end of life, for many of them, they'll want to have, there's somebody that they want to talk to. There's somebody that they want to make amends with or express love to. If you're lying to them, about their actual physical condition, what's the urgency? I'm just fine. And so again, it's not kind to disguise or to soft pedal or to flat out contradict what God says to be true. Her smoke, the burning never ceases. 
That's the angelic response. Verse four, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Amen meaning what? Yeah, so be it. If you want to put it in our day, right on brother. Okay? That's the idea of amen. It's agreeing. That's, this is absolutely right. That is absolutely correct. And again, hallelujah. Praise God for it. So the things that we so often want to not be associated with, these are looking and saying, that is absolutely right and proper. And a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants. Now here's where we come in. You who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. God is now publicly and in every way, he is now taking the throne. Satan, you are dethroned. All of that is now coming to pass. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now again, remember that the, the Jewish version of a wedding and how those weddings came about is a picture for what is happening here on a very large scale. So in a Jewish wedding, you would have the betrothal. You would have, and usually, <laughs> It was, a, it was made by the parents. So arranged wedding, often when the kids were very small. And you would have this commitment to one another. And that commitment was binding. The only way that could be separated was basically by a divorce, even though you don't have all of the physical aspects and the domestic aspects of that marriage yet. And so you have the betrothal. Then you would have, during that time, the man, the bridegroom, the groom, is making ready. He's getting a place ready for his bride. He's getting his financial and economic ducks in a row so that he's going to be able to provide for her. Then he comes and he brings his attendants with him. And he comes and he gets the bride and he takes her over to the place where, the, where everything is going to be, where the, where the marriage is going to occur. And there's a period, usually up to about a week, in between the time that he comes and gets her and the actual ceremony is going to take place. And then, that's where they have the supper, that's where they have the big party, and uh, the marriage gets consummated. And that is a picture, frankly, of what happens here with the church. The church is referred to how relative to Jesus in the New Testament. The bride of Christ. 
And so here you have, and again, that's not unique in the, in the Bible. Because who was represented as the wife of Yahweh in the Old Testament? That was Israel. And so here you have these special relationships that exist between the redeemed, both Old Testament and New Testament, with the Godhead. Okay? So, this is now coming to be. And so you, you have, Jesus, what did Jesus say to the disciples in John 14? I'm going to prepare a place for you. So in the wedding context, where is that? The home he's, made for. he's making the home. So the betrothal has already occurred. He's in the process now of getting everything ready. And if I go, I will what? I will come again and receive you to myself. The, the, the idea of the virgins, the ones with the lamps, they were, what were they waiting for? They were waiting for the bridegroom to come. So half of them were ready. Half of them were not. And so the idea here is that is where we are in redemptive history. This is where Jesus is preparing those. He's coming back to get, the, to get his wife. He's coming back to get his bride. That's the idea of the rapture. She's been taken, and now everything is ready for the actual wedding ceremony, and the kingpin of the wedding ceremony there is the Great Supper, where everybody comes together to celebrate this wedding, to celebrate this union. And the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, the linen that she's able to wear, this, this, these garments that are bright and clean, did she produce them? That is a trick question. What made her clean? The blood of the lamb, which we're going to get into again here in a minute. She's been made clean. She's been cleansed. And yet at the same time, what do these fine linens represent? They also represent her righteousness. And so here again, you have this, there's a tension here, all right? Dave has been preaching on it in past weeks. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? Why? Because it is God who is at work in you, both to work and to will of his good pleasure. And so are we to act in a way that is commensurate with our standing in Christ? Absolutely. So, again, this, that's the idea here of saving faith. You're sa we're saved by grace, by faith, alone. Yet, saving faith is never alone. When a person is in Christ, there is evidence that that person is in Christ. 
because they start to look like him. And in fact, that's one of the ways that you can test your own salvation. So that's 2 Corinthians 13. Test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. And frankly, those are questions that are better often asked of who? Ask somebody else. Don't answer that one yourself. If you're married, God has given you an exceedingly good microscope. Your spouse, who knows you better than anybody, right? Do I show evidence of the fruit of the Spirit? Is, Christ, is the Holy Spirit evident in me, in my life? Is there evidence of change in my character? I've told you of my, my dad. One of the things that I remember about him when I was very young, my dad had a temper. He had a temper. He karate chopped a coffee table one time and broke it in half. And I was the reason that he did it. He didn't do it to me. They went to get a new coffee table, and my mom specifically got one that had a ledger on the, around the perimeter that was about that deep. And her thought was, okay, try it on this one, big boy. One of the things that I remember about my dad is that that changed over time. The work of Christ was evident in him. And one of the ways that I could see it was in his responses. He was not an angry man as the years went by. That's the work of Christ in his heart. That should be evident or something, or things like that. That should be evident in every one of us if, in fact, we're redeemed. One of the other things that you'll be able to use, do you persevere under affliction? That's a great one. If you're persevering under affliction, what is that evidence of? That's evidence that you're kept. And so again, those things should be evident in our lives. Questions up till now? Okay, because now we're really going to start moving. Verse 9, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, so at the marriage supper, obviously you would have the bride, you would have the groom, you would have the families, and then you have a whole bunch of guests. And who are the guests? Friends and relatives, exactly. So they're not immediate members of that particular party. So who are the guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Pardon me? Angels could be, absolutely. They could be some of them, yes. This one's a little tough. 
Okay, so the question was asked, who else would be there? Now, when you talk about Israel being the wife of Yahweh, of God the Father, who constitutes Israel in that setting? Is it all Jews? No, it's not. So who is it? Believing Jews, redeemed Jews. Those are the ones who, are, who have the right to be called the wife of Yahweh. Who constitutes the bride of Christ? The church. Now, in the book of Revelation, when did the church age end? First of all, did it? When did the church age end in the book of Revelation? And, and, and did it? It ends, and it ends at the rapture. The church is physically removed from the earth and taken to heaven to forever be with Christ, never again to be separated from him. So we have the Old Testament saints, and we have the New Testament saints, those in the church, are there others who end up being redeemed? Yes, there's a bunch of them. Those are going to be the saints that are born out of the tribulation. Now, some of those people, are any of those people going to be Old Testament saints? No. Why not? Because the Old Testament ended a long time ago. Do they fall into the category, <coughs> excuse me, of the church? No, because the church has been taken to heaven. So, we have another group of tribulation saints who are going to be invited to the marriage supper. Are they going to miss anything? Are they somehow going to be deprived in heaven? No. No, they're not. Are you going to have special relationships that exist? Possibly. But again, they're not going to lose out but they don't fit in either one of those other two groups. They're going to be guests. They get to enjoy all of the benefits of that supper, just like the bride and groom do. Everybody in that thousand years. Everybody in the thousand, well, just about everybody. In, at the beginning, yes. Just about everybody in the thousand years. In fact, this is important enough. The angel says to John, then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And so, again, if you're redeemed, you're not getting left out in no way, shape, or form. And in fact, John has a response. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. 
Now, is John helping this angel by that response? No. In fact, what is John actually introducing for this angel? He's bowing down to worship an angel. What is the temptation that is now happening for this angel? That is worship that belongs to God. And so here's how you find out whether or not you're dealing with an angel. Angels are pretty powerful beings. Now that is evident throughout the scripture, right? When people realize, ah, I'm in the presence of an angel. Even more so in the Old Testament if you find that you're in the presence of the angel of the Lord because who generally is that referring to? That's the pre-incarnate Christ. You remember, I believe it was uh, Manoah, Samuel's father. You know, we have seen God and lived. Elkanah, Elkanah excuse me. Well, it, yeah, because we just, didn't we just read that? So the idea being that I've seen God and lived, right? And so the idea here, the angel immediately, don't do that. Now, why might the angel be sensitive about that? He's not God. He's not God. And what angel accepted that? Satan, Satan did. I don't want to end up like him. So I want to make sure that I don't go down that path. Don't do that. You worship God alone. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, that last sentence, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Here's, the, here's just an easy way to look at that. The Old Testament does what relative to Christ? It points to him. That's foretelling. You go back into the Old Testament, and you have all of those prophecies where God goes through and says, this is going to happen. There's a man who's going to come, and this is who he's going to be. And so you have all of that from the Old Testament foretelling to Jesus. What's the New Testament? The New Testament is the proclamation of him. That's the fourth telling. And so here you have it in the aspect of, here's a peek behind the curtain as to who is coming. And in the New Testament, you have, here he is. In fact, that's what this book is about, right? It is the revelation. It is the unveiling. It is the, the proclamation of Jesus Christ who he is, what he does, why he's done it. And so you have both aspects here. You've got the foretelling, this is going to happen in the future and relative to Jesus, and then you have the proclamation thereof. Now, when you come here on Sunday morning, you are going to hear a lot of foretelling. It's the proclamation of God's word. You're not going to run into any foretelling here. The only way you're going to get foretelling here is if we're dealing with something in God's word that has not yet occurred. 
And even then, that's not new information. We've already got that. And so ultimately, it's all forthtelling. It's the proclamation about God and about his word. That's the heavenly response to the judgment on Babylon. The joy, the rejoicing that that's to come, which then brings us to the great event, the second coming. Everything's ready. Verse 11, here he comes. And I saw heaven opened. One of the commentaries that I read, in chapter 4, heaven opened for John to come in. Here, heaven's opening to let Jesus out. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Roman generals, when they came into the city after a victory, military victory, rode white horses. This is the idea of one who is coming to reign. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Again, everything that he does is rooted in truth and in rightness, in holiness. And out of that comes a reaction to sin. And those who stay in sin, who stubbornly hold on to sin. His eyes are a flame of fire. He misses nothing. It's interesting here too. The first time when Jesus was born, his first advent when he came to earth, did he have eyes of fire? Think about the eyes of Jesus when he was here on this earth. How did he look at the woman at the well? How did he look at the woman caught in adultery? How did he look at the apostles? How did he look at Peter before and after? his denial. You have eyes of Jesus that are compassionate. How many times do you find in the Bible that he looks at somebody and he had compassion on them? He had compassion on people who did not respond to him in obedience. The rich young ruler. He looked on him with compassion and yet what did that rich young ruler do? At the, end of their, at the end of their conversation, he walks away unredeemed. Jesus had eyes of compassion. He had eyes of mercy, eyes of love. Now his eyes are a flame of fire because he's coming to judge. He misses nothing. Uh, Hebrews 
All things are open and laid, and you know, nothing is hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He misses nothing. So he has eyes of fire. On his head are many diadems. There was once a crown of thorns on his head. The idea behind this many diadems, when a kingdom was conquered, the crown that belonged to that king became the property of the new king. So the idea that he has many diadems, what's that a picture of? He's conquered the nations. There's no competing king. And again, these are diadems. These are the royal authority. These aren't the Stephanos, the victor's crown, you know, the little laurel wreath that you would get if you wanted an, an, at an athletic event. These are the diadems. These are the ruling crowns showing his sovereignty, his absolute power. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's inscrutable. There are parts of God that we are, we're never going to plumb the depths of him. We will never come to the point where we fully understand him. Ever. Ever. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That's not referring to his blood. That's referring to the blood of judgment. That's other people's blood. Now it's already on him. So this isn't referring to blood that's on him because of Armageddon. Has Christ been in the judgment? Has he been carrying out judgment before this? Absolutely, yes. Over time. Now, why is his robe about to get bloody again? Because he's going to tread out the winepress of the wrath of God. Now, when you look at this idea of the second coming, when you look in the Old Testament and you see a particular day referenced, you're going to run into a term often that's referred to as the day of the Lord. Now, there have been a number of days of the Lord. The day of the Lord is predominantly talking about judgment. There have been previous days of the Lord because God's judgment has been carried out on particular people groups in history. God has judged Israel by exiling them via Assyria. God judged Judah and Benjamin by sending them into exile via Babylon. Those were days of the Lord in that day, in those times. That was a time of judgment. Now, there is the day of the Lord, and that day is now. So when you go back, I've listed out a number of references for you, and I did that so that you get the idea that this is not a one-stop shop when it comes to this doctrine. 
You'll find it in Isaiah 2, Jeremiah 46, Zephaniah 1 and 3, Joel 2 and 3, Amos 5.18, Zechariah 14, 2 Thess 1, 2 Peter 3, Matthew 24 and 25. It's all over the place. And that is not an exhaustive list. That's the low-hanging fruit. There's all kinds of other ones that you could go through and find. And so here again, it's judgment coming. His name is called the Word of God. So John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? So you'll see that in John 1.1. You'll see that in the first part of Hebrews, where you find that God in, 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 the, in past days has spoken in the prophets and in these last days has spoken to us in Son. There's actually no article. Christ is the exact representation of God. And the armies which are in heaven, verse 14, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now these armies, there are, uh, MacArthur put it, there are multiple regiments in these, in these armies. There's the angels, the holy angels. You'll find that in Matthew uh, 25 when it talks about um, the Son of Man and his coming with the angels in power and great glory. So the angels are part of that army. Old Testament believers, church saints, tribulation saints, we're all part of that army. And again, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Now this sword, this is not the little stabbing one. This is the big one. This is the long sword. So this is the one where you can deal with people at a little bit of distance. And so this is the one that's being referred to here as to what he's carrying. And where does it, it comes out from his mouth. My, Sam. <laughs> yeah, so Sam's point is fine linen doesn't strike him as you know, being typical battle gear. Yeah, that's right. And what else is interesting about this? Yeah, there's only one weapon on this battlefield in God's army, and Jesus has got it. It's the sword coming out of his mouth. We're coming along on white horses, fine linen. Our clothing isn't dipped in blood. We're not carrying out the judgment, and frankly, we're not even going to be close to it. That is all being done by him. And it's all the nations. Now, I've listed in your notes, and I would encourage you, if you want to 
get more of the lead in here, you can go to Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. Now, we preached through this a couple months ago. And the idea behind Ezekiel 38 and 39, that is talking about this particular time period. It also refers to the battle at the end of the millennial kingdom. In Ezekiel 39, we find that there is going to be uh, blood on the ground for a distance of 200 miles. When all these people are killed because they are um, continuing their rebellion against God, there's going to be a big, I mean, the angel here, well, let's just read and then we'll, we'll get to that. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. There's nobody excluded here. Everybody from the top dog all the way down to people who shine boots, they're all included. Some of this is, is quoted almost verbatim from Ezekiel 39. And so Ezekiel 39 is, is absolutely tied in with this. And so here you have this great buildup. This is going to be an epic battle. When you watch an epic movie, you have this buildup to this battle scene, and the battle scene goes on for a while, right? Right? And it's showing how, you know, there's the back and the forth and, and finally one side wins. This is the most anticlimactic battle scene in the history of the planet. You've got this great buildup. You've got it. Uh, previously, you've seen that uh, the, the beast and his kings, they're, they're gathering all their minions and they're bringing them over here for the war. And how's the battle related? Here's the great lead up. Now here's the result, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So, you know, the drums are, the dumbs are rolling. You know, here you have, we're going to have this epic scene. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Jesus doesn't even break a sweat. That's it. So if you're geared up for some great battle scene, sorry, wrong movie. The beast and the false prophet, number one and number two guys, thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and they'll never die forever they will be in that place forever hell was made for the devil and his angels that's and, it, and right now it is currently unoccupied. 
God has prepared a place for us, right? That we may be with him forever. God's prepared a place for them as well. And the initial, the, the charter members of Hell's Homeowner Association are the beast and the false prophet. They're the first two. And for a thousand years, they're going to be the only occupants. The rest, they're killed by the sword that comes out of the mouth of the lamb. There are going to be so many dead, the birds and the scavengers are going to come and feast on those bodies, and it will still take Israel seven months to bury the bodies. Again, that's from Ezekiel 39. There are going to be so many weapons of war recovered, they're going to be able to burn those for fuel for seven years. They don't have to chop down trees. They've got this other stuff that they can burn for seven years. And so this is not a little skirmish. It's a massive event. Now there's another thing that's going to happen here after Armageddon. And you're not going to find that in this book. But it has to fit somewhere. And that's going to be the sheep and the goat judgment from Matthew 25. Jesus has come. In fact, just let's flip there real quick. Go to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, what's the, what's the, the meaning? What's the significance of the sheep and the goats? Saved, Saved and unsaved. The sheep, they're redeemed. They're going to be the blessed ones. The goats, they're not the redeemed. They are unredeemed. And just skip down. The unredeemed, well, they head to eternal punishment. The ones that are redeemed, great blessing. The ones that are redeemed continue on into the millennial kingdom. We're going to talk about that at length next week. The only people who get into the millennial kingdom are redeemed. And so the millennial kingdom starts with all redeemed people. Not yet glorified. They still, they, they walk in just like you and me. They've survived the tribulation. They're going into the millennial kingdom with their normal bodies, meaning they can do all the things that you and I can do now. They still have a sin nature. They're redeemed. 
They still have a sin nature. That's why in the millennial kingdom, you find that there are still sacrifices because there is still sin. Not as much as in years past because Satan is bound. We'll talk about that again more next week. Okay, questions. You guys were pretty quiet today. Anything confusing? I'm getting a look, which means I'll probably have a conversation with another one of the pastors here after we're done. (laughs) I don't know about you, how I long for this day. Let's pray. Father, this day is going to come. It'll come when it's time. Not before and not after. That date is fixed on your calendar. And while we have no idea how far out in the future that is, Father, help this to to spur us on, to motivate us, that we would be your hands and your feet and, and speak your words while we are here. That we would proclaim your truth, that we would be forthtelling, that we would tell of the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we would proclaim what, what you have done for us, what you would do for those who would bow their knee for, to you. And so, Father, help us to be about your business. Help our faith to be encouraged, that we would be strengthened, that we would not be given to fear, that regardless of what affliction or trouble comes, that we would realize it's coming because you deem it best. And therefore, what difficulty comes, comes with the grace whereby we may stand and whereby we may overwhelmingly conquer. Father, thank you that you don't eke out anything you are going to completely overthrow all evil. You are going to completely overthrow the devil on your schedule. Help us not to to kick against the goads while we wait. Help us to have that anticipation of longing for that day and yet not be grumbling and not be complaining in the current day because things aren't going the way that we think they ought. And so, Father, help us to demonstrate by our words, by our conduct, by our attitudes, by our actions, that we are children of the risen King. It's in his name that we ask it. Amen.